0: Okay, hello friends and welcome to the first of our July Sunday specials, a month of unique public shiurim on a variety of topics from leading chachamim and academics from around the world taking place before we launch our new and exciting membership program in September. Tonight we have the privilege of having with us Dr. Robert Brody, who will be presenting on the geonim, the chachamim of sefarad, and the link between them. Dr. Brody has a PhD in mathematics from Harvard University and a doctorate in Talmud from the Hebrew University. He is an expert on the Geonim and Babylonian Jewry, the author of the Geonim of Babylonia and the Shaping of Medieval Jewish Culture, and is an immensely important resource in the field. It is an honor to have him with us. As usual, tonight's class is being recorded and will be available later. If you have any questions, please raise your hand, and hopefully we'll also have time for questions at the end. With that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us, and thank you so much, Dr. Brody. It is an honor, and the floor is yours
1: pleasure to join you. Um, I should just say, I think that when I sent the message, I spelled with an, an extra H at the end. So you may not get it. So perhaps I should send it send it again without that extra H. Have you received that file?
2: Yes, correct. It's without the H at the end.
1: All right. I will send once again. here. So good evening. First of all, um, let me say that I'm sorry that um, Rabbi Dweck is uh, unavailable this evening. I was looking forward to uh, conducting this as a conversation with him, but um, I will try to do my best without him. Um, So I was asked to speak to you about connections between svardim and ge'onim. And uh, perhaps I I will begin by saying a few words about those two terms. Uh, The the term svardim is um, imprecise. What it implies is people, Jews with roots, in Spain, which was identified in the Middle Ages as the biblical Sfarad. But of course, there are uh, many people who would associate themselves as Sfardim, whose ancestors uh, were never located in in Spain. There were many other uh, Jewish communities, um, such as, North Africa. Now, it's it's true that when the Jews were expelled from Spain, many of them uh, went to North Africa and joined the existing communities there. But there were also very major communities that never passed through Spain. Uh, the other the other term, which is widely used, at least in Israel, in in Talking that overlaps with what are called Sfardim, or perhaps is synonymous would be Edot Mizrach, the the eastern communities, which is also an imprecise term, since um, many of the uh, communities in question are located far to the west of um, Eretz Yisrael. Let's say far to the west of Bavel. It's not not totally clear to me um, where that nomenclature comes from. Um, I, I think, do, do we mean when we talk about Spardim, are we are we saying those Jews who are not Ashkenazim? Ashkenazim is perhaps um, easier to define a little more strictly, since I think the Jews who identify as Ashkenazim probably do have roots going back to France, Germany, England, the part of part of Western Europe that was identified as greater Ashkenaz, or to the offshoots of that community in places like Poland and uh, and later Russia. But I, I think the the really relevant um, categories, for at least from my perspective, are talking about the Jews whose ancestors uh, lived at some point in the, in their past under Islam, and and the Jews whose ancestors lived under Christianity. Um, so the the Islamic world. Uh, during the period of the, of the Go'onim um, and and later uh, extended beyond Eretz Israel and Bavel to the east and to the west, encompassed North Africa uh, and Spain, and um, later with the Reconquista in Spain. It, that that territory was removed from the um, Islamic Empire, but it stayed until today, um, encompassing North Africa and territories to the east. And when I talk about the Gaonim, perhaps I should also give a definition for that term. What I'm what I mean by the Gaonim is specifically the heads of the central yeshivot in Babylonia, in Bavel, uh, during what we call the Gaonic period, which runs, ran roughly from uh, the middle of the perhaps 6th century to the middle of the 11th century. So um, during this time, there were also some uh, there was a yeshiva in Eretz Israel, the head of which also bore the title of gaon. But we know a great deal more about the yeshivot of Bavel than we do about the yeshiva of Eretz Israel, which is a point that I'll probably come back to later. And what I'm talking about uh, will be primarily. The Babylonian Gaonim, the heads of the famous yeshivot that were called after the towns of Sura and Pumbedita, although at a later point in the Gaonic period they actually relocated and were located in Baghdad. Um, The well-known background to this question of connections between Svardim and Go'onim is that during this this period, there were much closer ties between the academies in, in Babylonia and those parts of the Jewish world which were under Islamic uh, government. And especially, we know uh, especially about ties to Northern Africa and Spain. Um, Many of the chuvot of the responsa that were written by the Babylonian ge'onim were sent to these communities. Now, we we also have a great many responsa uh, for which we don't have that kind of information. But for the ones where we do know uh, where the questions originated, where the answers were sent, that was usually either in northern Africa or in Spain. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the most famous example being the Seder of Amram, the uh, Sidur Tfilah, uh, that was sent in the middle of the of the ninth century, which was addressed to scholars in Barcelona. That there are a great many. Uh, Uh, other examples. Um, I don't want to give the wrong impression that the Babylonian academies had connections only within the Islamic world. Um, Certainly, communication with the Jewish communities that were under the same umbrella of Islamic government was much easier and more common, but we all know that that uh, the Gonim of Babylonia also had some correspondence with Jews leaving in european perhaps also other lands um, that were that were under Christian control i 'm going to um, be talking about the Svardim. Uh, and basically, not much later than the Gonic period. So I, I'm drawing the draw the line essentially with the Rambam, and I will will later on be talking specifically about some of the ways in which I see uh, close connections between the Babylonian Gaonim and the Rambam. But before that, I, I'll talk in somewhat more. General, uh, general terms. The the usual, the prevailing theory um, in talking about the origins of the Jewish communities in the Middle Ages in in Europe is that the um, community in Ashkenaz has its roots in Eretz Israel um, via Italy. We know that there were close ties between Eretz Yisrael and Italy going back to the time when they were both part of the Byzantine Empire. And we know that many of the um, founders, the most uh, prominent early Jewish settlers in Ashkenaz came from Italy. So the the generally accepted approach is to say that um, the Ashkenazic Jews have their roots in Eretz Israel, whereas the Sephardic Jews or the the Jews uh, of North Africa and Spain have their cultural roots in Bavel. So in a general sort of way, we would expect to find that that there would be uh, greater cultural similarities between, on the one hand, Bavel and North Africa slash Spain, and on the other hand, between Eretz Israel and Ashkenaz. The the picture um, some you know some of the ways in which the connections between Eretz Israel and Ashkenaz are generally understood to express themselves include the very Strong position given to custom to to minhang, which seems to enjoy a privileged position both in Eretz Israel, um, go, going back to the time of the Ushami, and later in medieval and and post-medieval Ashkenaz. Uh, there's also another striking example is the place that piut uh, plays in both of these cultures. There is, of course, later, piyut finds a place in Sephardi culture as well, but a much more um, prominent place in Ashkenazi culture. So these are some of the the points that are generally understood as being um, holdovers or, or part of the Palestinian legacy of Ashkenazi Jewry. Now, the, the picture is more complicated than that for a number of reasons, uh, one of them being that, as I said earlier, our knowledge of Eretz Israel in the Gaonic period is much more limited than our knowledge of Bavel. Uh, beyond that, it appears um, there, there is good reason to think that by the end of the Gaonic period, the dividing lines between uh, the Jewish life, the Jewish culture of Eretz Israel and of Bavel were uh, much less sharply drawn than they had been earlier, which is to say, um, in the earlier period, Bavel seems to have concentrated almost exclusively on Talmud and Halakha, whereas the sages of Eretz Israel were engaged in a much uh, wider range of intellectual activities in things like Midrash and Piyut, and um, probably uh, various disciplines associated with Bible, language, etc., uh, by the by the end of the Gonic period, most of these things had made their way to Bavel, to a greater or lesser extent, and conversely, the Babylonian expertise in Talmud and Halakha had led to a large scale adoption of the Babylonian tradition in Eretz Israel itself, and in territories that had um, been under the influence of Eretz Yisrael. So uh, when you, for example, um, the the kind of obvious point might be that we know that at an early period, the tradition in Eretz Yisrael, uh, the the, uh, Amidah had literally, the weekday Amidah had literally 18 blessings, whence the name Shmon whereas in the Babylonian tradition there were actually 19 blessings. And nowadays, and for a long time past, all uh, Jewish communities have uh, adopted the Babylonian practice in this and related areas. Uh, Similarly, uh, we know that in early times, the Babylonians completed the reading of the Torah in an annual cycle, and the Palestinians completed the reading of the Torah in a triennial cycle. Once again, uh, it's been a long time since any Jewish community uh, followed the triennial custom that was the ancient Palestinian custom, uh, as far as we know. In fact, um, there, there is evidence, which some of which has come to light only quite recently, that even within Eretz Israel, the Babylonian Talmud itself, by uh, the end of the Ghani period, had achieved a very prominent and perhaps um, preeminent position. Uh, as against the Palestinian Talmud, the some of the other ways in which we can see continuity between um, uh, continuity between Bavel and and the Spardi tradition of the Middle Ages would be in areas like um a rational or rationalizing approach to theology um which was something that was um championed by the later Gaonim and afterwards pursued by outstanding sages in the in the Sephardi tradition and basically not to be found in in the ashkenazi world um, the kind of biblical exegesis that was practiced in the Sephardi realm uh, harks back to the kind of exegesis that was done by the later um and, and again, rather strikingly different from Ashkenazi biblical exegesis. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk. Now, pretty much for the rest of my time, perhaps leaving some some time for questions at the end, but I want to talk about the area of Talmud and Halakha, which uh, is the one that I know the most about and um, am, am most interested in. And I want to talk about what I see as being very important commonalities between uh, Babylonia and and Sparad in this area, and the um, in contrast to the Ashkenazi world, certainly from the time of the Tosafot, uh, it's less clear um, where people like Rashi stood on some of the questions that I'm going to that I'm going to talk about. But you can see very um, sharp contrasts between on the one side, the Ge'onim of Babylonia and the early Sparty sages like the Reef and the Rambam. Uh, and on the other side, the Ba'alei uh, The The picture becomes less clear in later Svarad because uh, beginning from the 13th century, there's a very significant um, influx of Ashkenazi Torah into uh, into Spain, so that the the later Sparti tradition is a, an am- amalgam of early Geonic slash um, sp- Spanish or, or, or Sparti tradition and uh, the Ashkenazi learning of the Balai Tosafot. So I'm going to to draw my uh, line ending with the Rambam. And basically, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to speak uh, for purposes of simplification and keeping this within time bounds. I'm going to talk about the Rambam and the Gonim. And the, the, the essential... Uh, distinction that I that I want to make is that the Baalei Tosafot essentially treated all parts of the Talmud as having equal weight. And you can picture this as having both a horizontal and a vertical dimension, by which I mean the horizontal dimension might be that uh, what is found in any passage of the Talmud should be reconciled with what's found anywhere else in the Talmud. And of course, we know that that's the, perhaps the most characteristic activity of, of the Tosafot, is to say, well, this discussion in um, Masachat Shabbat uh, doesn't seem to agree with the uh, discussion in Masachat kitin And how can we interpret these two sources in such a way that they're uh, aligned or not in contradiction uh, to each other? And what I mean by the vertical dimension is that within a single Talmudic sugya, all the different elements are treated as being equally weighty. That is to say, uh, statement made by Rav or uh, Rav Yosef or Rava, and a question um, raised by the Talmud, and an answer that's suggested by the Talmud uh, uh, or an observation based on one of these statements. Um, as far as the Baalai Tosafot are concerned, all of these are equally valid sources of halakha. Whereas for the Ga'onim and for the Rambam, distinctions are to be made between um, different parts of the Talmud, and not all of them carry equal weight. Perhaps it would be fair to say that not all of them necessarily carry any weight at all when it comes to deciding the halakha. And I think that these uh, differences derive from a very fundamentally different understanding of what what the Talmud is and the way that it works. Uh, and I think the Gaonic um, early Sephardi understanding of the nature of the Talmud would, would include such ideas as um, many of the answers that are that are suggested in the Talmud are meant as possibilities rather than necessarily the right answers so for example one of the things that that goes on um, almost on every page of the Talmud is that as a sage's opinion will be criticized on the grounds that uh this what this Amorah said contradicts or seems to contradict a Tana'idic source and the rules of um uh, Talmudic discourse In, I'm simplifying a little but the, the the basic assumption is that uh Amora'im don't um argue against Tana'im um and and so when such a contradiction or putative contradiction is raised the common strategy is is to say well that um, either that tannitic source refers to some special circumstances or the amora was talking about some special circumstances or both and uh, as as long as the two sources refer to different sets of circumstances there's no contradiction between them now Often these um, explanations strike the reader as far-fetched, and I, I would argue that the, in the Gaonic understanding of, of the Talmud, uh, it was the Talmud wasn't necessarily claiming that this was the correct authoritative understanding of a given source. The point was to say. Since there are ways of resolving this contradiction—and here's one, for example—the um, Amoreic statement is allowed to stand, because it's no longer in, uh, contradicted by the Tan-edic source. But it, it may be that there are other ways of resolving that tension, and um, sometimes sometimes the, the Gumara says that explicitly. Uh, so I, I, for the Tosophists, when someone says, uh, you have you resolve this contradiction in by making the text refer to a particular set of circumstances, they took that to be the definitive explanation of that text. And um, this leads to a great many differences in actually, understanding uh, the discussion and in deciding the halakha and I, I just more or less as an aside I would say that uh, probably many of you are familiar with the fact that much of the commentary on the Mishneh Torah um, for the last 800 years has centered around what are perceived as contradictions between Different decisions of the Rambam on the basis that in one place he accepts an opinion which the Talmud um, says is associated with a certain principle, and in another place he accepts an opinion which the Talmud says is associated with a different principle, or uh, he accepts a source according to what seems to be its plain meaning rather than the way that the source is interpreted in order to avoid a contradiction with some other source. And and my argument would be that this whole uh, commentary tradition has been troubled by these so-called contradictions within the Rambam because it's operating with some fundamental assumptions that the Rambam didn't share. And so I'm, I'm going to talk briefly now about a couple of Ga'onic sources and a few sources in the Rambam and try to show um, how they have these principles in common. And here's where I would appreciate the uh, file being shared if, if that's possible. Yeah. One second,
0: we'll set that up.
1: Right, so I'm, I'm going to show you two Gaonic sources. Uh, what you see now in front of you is the, the Talmud source on um, Shvort 45B, um, and there's a there's very long and complicated discussion, which uh, we, we don't have time to go into in, in detail. But the, the, the Talmud um, claims that both Rami Ba'chama and Rava accept the idea that if a person, as you see at the end, According to this uh, Talmudic discussion, Both Rami Bahama and Rava agree that if someone deposits uh, articles for safekeeping with another person, and he does so in the presence of witnesses, the the person who's caring for this property need not um, find witnesses when he returns the property. That is to say, he would be believed if He later claims that he returned the property to the owner, uh, not in the presence of witnesses. However, if a document was drawn up documenting the fact that uh, this property had been given to him for safekeeping, he would need to find witnesses when he wants to return the property to its owner and otherwise he wouldn't be believed. This um, comes up against a subiyah, uh, another Talmudic discussion in Baba Batra, which uh, seems to, or fairly clearly says that, in fact, one need not return the property in the presence of, of witnesses. And Rav, Rav Shri Ragaon was asked about this. And what he does is, is quite remarkable. He's, he says that uh, when the Suya in in Shuvot says um, draws the conclusion that Rami Chama and Rava both agree that uh if the property was handed over in the presence of witnesses it need not be returned in the presence of witnesses but if it was uh, documented in in a written document. It does need to be returned in the presence of witnesses. Um, He describes how Rava uh, questioned, criticized Rami Bar-Khama, and we're now down at the bottom of that page and continuing on to the next page. Um, ah, I see, I think, unfortunately, you've lost the, the bold that I that I put into the text <laughs> um, so um, so he says uh, let's stop stop there or uh, we'll go up even a, a little bit. Uh, he explains how Rava was um, criticizing Rami Vahama V'dachak Rami Bahama Nafshei. And Rami Bar was uh, forced into a corner, and he—the only way that he was able to answer Rava's criticism was to say that this must refer to a specific set of circumstances. And then Rava continued to criticize him. <inaudible> a couple of lines further down, um, and dachakan nami Rami the <inaudible> Uh, once again Rami Bahama was um, forced to contort himself. the uh, mm-hmm. he wasn't able to find a distinction and he therefore he had to agree, admit, the um, the he found some very specific set of circumstances in which he said that uh, it would be possible to have a Shavu Ado, right now, and at this point, Rava was silent. And if we go down towards the the end of the next paragraph, um, about five lines from the bottom of the page, Vaheide kaamrina mechlad that ravaus fira lahu amavkidot zochaverol bishtar tzarich zirlo bishtar. Love milta psiktahi. Elah hafin kaamrina. He says the conclusion of the gemara uh, that both of them agree as to the principle that I mentioned earlier. This is not a certain thing, a decided thing. But rather, this is what we're saying. Since Rava was quiet at this point, since he didn't specifically say that he rejected Rami Bar-Khamah's, um answer, so we could say that um, he agrees with Rami Barhama on this question. But now, Rav Shrira is going to offer an alternative, which is not the one that the Talmud says. He says that we could offer another suggestion. The reason that Rava broke off the argument at this point was. Um, that he was fed up with uh, Rami Bar-Hama's, um uh, ridiculous um, answers. And at this point, he decided it wasn't worth arguing with him any further. And that's essentially what Rav Shrira sets up in opposition to the explanation in the Talmud. And then says, and therefore, uh, since we have a clear um, discussion in Baba Batra, that we're going to go with that. And ignore uh, what is suggested by the Sugya in Shvuot. The second Gaonic text that I want to present, and here I think uh, we're probably running a little short of time, so I'm going to abridge this, but there's a um, discussion again in, in Baba Batra and uh, the the um, Raf Papa. Says that there's a contradiction between two sources, and that the Talmud ends the Sugya by saying, Kashya, this is difficult. Right? And so, here then we go down to the responsum of Rav Haigaon as quoted by Rabbeinu Hananeh. And again, I will skip down, let's go to the next page. Uh, now perhaps we'll start at a couple of lines before that. He's, this is the famous distinction. They, when the Talmud wants to indicate that a position has been rejected, that the uh, critique uh, is irrefutable. The the way of doing that is to say diploni He says the use of the technical term kashia indicates that this opinion has not been rejected, and the Talmud is hinting at the the fact um, that although at at a given moment they didn't have a plausible or acceptable solution to offer, apparently they had a sense that a solution could be found, and therefore the source in question was not being rejected. So this is the really uh, crucial principle here, I think. When two sources contradict each other in terms of their underlying reasoning, with their tamin, And this contradiction is not resolved. How are we to proceed? Says Rav Haiga on we basically ignore the reasoning, uh, look at the two sources, follow each one of them in its own context. <speaking in Hebrew> that is to say, if they relate to two different Circumstances, two different contexts. And the Talmud explains the, the underlying reasoning of one source as being A, and of the other source as being not A. And we don't haven't suggested a resolution of the difficulty. We simply ignore the explanations and follow each source in its proper context. And we don't have to worry about finding an explanation and resolving the seeming contradiction. So, uh, what I'm going to claim is um, that these principles can be found in operation in the Rambam. And I'll, I'll give again. Two examples. The first example, which has been discussed by others, especially Levinger in his book on the Rambam's halachic thought, uh, pointed out this this example. Um, the the famous question of mitzvot zrichot kavana is uh, intention to fulfill a mitzvah a necessary component. Or suppose that I do the proper Action, um, but not thinking about its significance as the performance of a mitzvah, or perhaps having something completely different in mind. uh, Have I have I fulfilled the mitzvah? And the if you ask, did the Rambam think that mitzvot require intention or do not require intention? The answer is neither, because. In with respect to some mitzvot, his decision is that they do need kavana, and with respect to other mitzvot, his he decides that they don't need kavana. and this has puzzled uh, generations of commentators. I what you have here is the uh, Magid Mishnah. Uh, So the answer, as I say, when it comes to blowing the shofar, the Rambam says that kabana is a necessary uh, component. When it comes to eating matzah, He says that it's not a necessary component. If you ignore the um, attempts of the Gemara to provide an overarching principle and you simply look at each of these discussions in isolation, then the Rambam's decisions make perfectly good sense and uh, are exactly what we would expect. Again, I can't go into the details uh, because uh, we're short on time. But but if you look at the Talmudic um, discussion concerning Matzah, the one concerning Shofar, and the one concerning Kriyat Shema, you will see that the Rambam's halachic uh, decisions in all three cases are precisely what would we would expect if we ignore the, the section that that... Uh, puts forward an overarching principle and ties these together under the heading of either mitzvot need kavanah or mitzvot don't need kavanah. Um, and my last example uh, will be another contradiction between two will if you can uh, page further down, please, Um Two sugyot, one in Ktubot and one in Kidushin. Right, we can... So, the upshot of... Uh, stop and go back a bit, please. So, the upshot of the sugya... Uh, stop there, please. The upshot of the sugya in Ketubot um, is... Rav Papa argues, Rav Papa is uh, asking Abaye um, how a particular source could be interpreted. Point, uh, what is taken for granted is that someone who has intercourse with a Mamzeret um, is liable to the punishment of Malkot. However, The Rambam decides um, that this person is not eligible to Malkot. And and this gives rise to one of the questions of the Sages of Lunel. Rambam says that, that sexual intercourse outside of marriage with a woman who is prohibited with a love, with a simple negative commandment, um, is not punishable by Malkot. That's the discussion in Tractate Ktubot. And the Rambam says, um, yes, you're, that's a very intelligent questions. And he says, actually, when I wrote my first draft, I, I thought the same way. My first draft was uh, in keeping with what you suggest, but then when I thought about it some more, ve'echah ha'takti ve'dikta ki kushmo ashmu ah So what the Rambam is saying is, although the um, line in question is attributed to Rav Papa, it's dialectic. It's not a normative statement. And when I have to weigh that against what the Rambam takes to be a normative statement in uh, Tractate Kiddushim, he says, he lays out here the principle. Talmud Aruch um is always to be preferred to Masa Umatan. So again, we have within the within the Talmud in the same way that we saw in the Gaonic response, um, we have first class citizens and we have second class citizens. And the whatever qualifies as Talmud Aruch, and if, if you look carefully At that, uh, in Kiddushin, it's actually very interesting that the Rambam considers it to be tamud Aruch, but because he does, because it's offered as a straightforward explanation and not in the context of question and answer, that uh, in his view is preferable and carries greater weight for halachic decision-making than um, Talmudic dialectic, which was what he finds in to Ktubot. So I hope I've succeeded in uh, drawing some, some lines, uh, connecting Onim and, and Svardim in these very important areas. And perhaps um, a few minutes for questions, if, if there are any.
0: Thank you so much. That was really insightful. And we have a question... I see in the chat we have, we'll start with uh, Rabbi Phillips, his question, and then we'll move on to the people who raised their hands. Uh, Rabbi Phillips, you want to ask a question?
3: I was going to ask another one, just based on a, <laughs> something we, we got to at the end. Um, I, I'll start with the with later one, it's probably fresh in our minds. So we've got it. We seem to have a principle here that the Rambam and the gaonim will be sec like a suge, which is which is a uh, clear, rather than something which is based on dialectic. Um, how does that weigh up with other principles? For example, we see that the Rambam will be like a sugya de shmita, a sugya which is there seems to be the focus um, focus point of a of a of a topic, rather than something which is brought in as a side point.
1: Are those conflicting principles or? No, I don't think so. I, I think that they're perhaps complementary uh, principles. Um, there's, there could certainly be more than one principle at work in in weighing these things. Yeah. Do
3: you have a
0: second question,
1: Richards? Um,
3: there was a question from earlier on, the other topic. We we talked about how there was a change from the three-year uh, Torah cycle and, cha- and, uh, and changes made to the Tefillah, 18 and 19 brachot, um, when, when exactly did these changes take place and, and how did they take place? Was the Babylonians who are forcing their position on, the, on those in Israel or were they came to, to accept that there was a greater authority or, or knowledge base elsewhere? How did it come about?
1: Mm, no, well, those are very hard questions to answer. Um, what we do know that Babylonian Jews had been trying to, oh, no. for, for hundreds of years to prevail on um, Jews in Eretz Israel and Jews elsewhere in the world who had been exposed to. Uh, the traditions of Eretz Israel to reject those and adopt the Babylonian tradition. We know this was a, a battle that had been going on for centuries. Um, my take is that eventually the um, leaders in Eretz Israel recognized Babylonian superiority in the area of Talmud and Halakha, and um, accepted various Babylonian positions. Uh, We do have documentation, some documentation, from um, Egypt, where there were Babylonian communities and Palestinian communities. And we know that that, uh, there was a gradual adoption within the Palestinian synagogue of some of these Babylonian <clears throat> practices, specifically with regard to uh, reading the Torah in an annual cycle instead of a triennial cycle. And there's a there's a unique document that was written, if I'm remembering the details correctly, at the beginning of the 13th century, um, where the leaders of the Palestinian community Pledge themselves to maintain their uh, traditions against the encroaching Babylonian traditions. So, we could say something about the time frame, um, but not as much as we would like. As I say, our sources, especially within Eretz Yisrael, are much more fragmentary and, um, than would enable us to really answer those questions. Thank you. Uh, uh,
2: hi, Professor Brody. Um, uh, my question is, uh, regarding the point you made a few minutes ago about the true the coach, the force the answers that Gamara uh, very frequently gives and um, how you were saying that oftentimes it doesn't necessarily mean them as absolute answers, but a possibilities uh, Might it be that sometimes or at least uh, one motive for the Gemara to give those answers is because uh, nearly or very frequently when it does so, it um, it gives a, a memra or an older tradition uh, within that answer. So could it be that oftentimes Zygmar gives a shubha to in order to get a tradition on the table, a source or a memra on the table, m- because they would otherwise be forgotten or it, it might want to just sort of preserve them in that way? Because Zygmar also is trying to preserve discussions that maybe could have been forgotten. Uh,
1: that's an interesting suggestion. And I can say that I've... If- Thought about that um, possibility, uh, I can Im- I can imagine it um, as a possible motivation. Although my impression uh, is a little different than yours, I don't think that I don't think that that's common when when they're offering a what I would call an ukimto. It usually takes the form of saying um, this source refers to circumstances X, Y, Z, um, rather than citing another Memra, another tradition. But there are cases like that. And I could imagine that perhaps in some of those cases that was say, um, a reason in favor of, of suggesting that particular resolution rather than another one. Have to think about it some more.
2: Even if it might be anonymous, I'm saying maybe "name"er was the wrong word, but oftentimes they're anonymous. It could be that it's headed, uh, it belongs to someone else who so just not giving the name of that person. But, but thank you
0: for the answer, I understand. We have a question in the chat from Simon. Simon, you wanna ask your question?
4: Oh, yes. It's that the historiography often tells us that the tradition of old Sepharad is continuous with that of the Gawanim, as you have been saying, whereas then the Catalonian school, Nachmanides and Ibn Adret and so on, were importing traditions from the Tosafot, or making a kind of bridge between the two, Mm -hmm. and yet that's a little bit at odds with Nachmanides' own claim, which is that he is Defending the older Geonim, like the Bahag and the Reef, against what he sees as kind of an over rationalistic approach of Maimonides, and that he is trying to defend, for example, the, tari- the Tariag mitzvot, as put in the Halachot Gedolot, and of those. And so uh, he is claiming to be the defender of the Geonim. Now, is there any sort of truth in that, or do you think that's a kind of apologetic dodge?
1: I think there is some some truth in that. I think that, um, I think that Nachmaridis had, as part of his understanding of his own role and his own mission, uh, defending certain great figures from from the past, and you know, that's what he what he does with the ruf in in milchamot Hashem. Um He he's, um, he has certain um, heroes who have been subjected to criticism, and sees it as his responsibility to defend them against that criticism. But uh, I, I don't think that that is contradicts the fact that his own thinking includes elements which have been imported from Ashkenaz. Um, and, you know, it, it it's, uh, requires a lot of work to try to pin down just how much he will accept from Ashkenaz and in what circumstances. But I think his, I think his thinking has clearly incorporated elements of the thinking of, of the Balehotosafot.
4: It just always seems a bit odd when, you know, when the Rambam claims that he agrees with the Reef on almost everything except perhaps eight points. And, uh, and the Ramban also claims to be agreeing with the Reef on any on practically everything, and yet they're almost always disagreeing with each other.
1: Hmm... Um. I don't think they're disagreeing with each other so much. <laughs> the Rambam famously says that that the Rif was correct uh, with a very, very small number of exceptions. I believe he says they can't possibly reach the number of 30, mm. which uh, when you look at the uh, corpus of Halacha is is a remarkably small uh, percentage. Uh, if you actually count, you might get to a little bit more, but I think the Rambam is very much within the tradition uh, uh, that that descends from the Ghanim through the reef.
3: Okay, any other final questions? Okay,
0: with that... Um thank you so much everyone for coming thank you so much dr brody uh, make sure everyone to uh stay tuned for all the sunday specials we have uh, this month and also to sign up for the membership that uh the new and exciting program we're going to be launching soon and uh have a great night everyone thank you so much
4: is there a way that we can have the written document sent to us
3: um yes we have the document so